Welcome to Kaya, the college and young adult ministry of Midtown Baptist Temple, a ministry seeking to pursue a deeper faith in Jesus Christ through God's Word, fellowship, and prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, um, well, we, we are grateful uh, to be here. Um, we're grateful for your word that you gave us last night. Uh, we're thankful that your hand um, stands extended to us and that you're calling us to, to simply follow. Uh, the invitation is to, is to follow you. It's not as though uh, we, we don't know the way. We just simply put our feet into the steps that you trod. And so we're, we're grateful that, that such a, a weak and lowly people are invited uh, into your universal plan and that we get to participate, that we have, we have and find purpose in knowing you and simply following you as our Father. Thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. Thank you for his words, his mind captured for us on paper. Thank you for your spirit. Uh, God, thank you for indwelling us. Uh, the mighty men, uh, all they had was the covering of your spirit. And they did things that we can't even get our heads around. David only ever knew uh, momentary and fleeting empowerment. And yet you've chosen to live inside of us. What are we capable of, God? We're asking for your help. We pray that you would teach us what it means to be uh, giant killers, that we would slay, that we would, we would slay the giants of this world whether that be our emotions, whether that be the way that we feel today, uh, or the enemies of this world, uh, as we take territory for your kingdom, as we reach souls, as we preach the gospel to the campuses and the communities around us. Lord, help us to slay giants. In Jesus Christ's name, amen. The year is 1025. And the time of peace in Israel is over. The tribal villages of Israel are dispersed. They're vulnerable and they're poor. The people of the tribes have, have struggled to fully unify themselves under their very first king. King Saul has spent the last five years building an army intended to stave off the raiding parties of the Amalekites, the Ammonites, and the Moabite armies that preyed on the scattered tribes throughout the land. Now, everyone knew King Saul was not a military man. Noble, passionate, yes, he was those things. But he just didn't have the stomach for combat like his son Jonathan. Jonathan was a lot different than his father. He was valiant, a natural warrior. 
But he was young and he had limited authority in the ranks of his father's kingdom. Now the Philistines, the Philistines were the most serious problem that the nation of Israel faced. The Philistines were the sworn enemy of Israel. A coastal people with three major cities along the coast of the Mediterranean Sea. They were worshipers of Dagon, a half-human, half-fish. Israel resented the Philistines, who they believed were occupying the land that belonged to God's covenant people. And after some initial skirmishes over territory, the Philistines had determined to spend their waking hours plaguing a weak Israel that had not yet uh, uh, had time to to build and to grow or to centralize their government or to rally around their king. They hadn't had time to do that. They didn't have an identity. And so the Philistines took advantage of these weaknesses. For many years, the Philistines had cornered the market on ironsmithing. And so their soldiers were outfitted with the finest weaponry available in the world at that time. And those weapons were exclusive, exclusive to them. And Israel had none of those capabilities. According to 1 Samuel 13, 19, there was no smith found throughout all the land of Israel. For the Philistines said, lest the Hebrews make them swords or spears. So the Israelites had had beaten many of their farming tools into weapons of war. They were employing clubs, fashioned from tree branches and, and they had crafted crudely, crudely fashioned spears out of things that they found. In fact, the, the only men in all of Israel's army with iron swords were Saul and his son Jonathan. Now despite these weaknesses, this was an army of men who were committed to, to making the monarchy work. These were were men who were devoted to fighting in order to to push back the advancements of their enemy. They were a proud people. But at the same time, there were many people who were unsure of King Saul. Some said that he was heroic, that he was assertive. But others who were closer to him, others that knew him better, insisted that he was indecisive in his decision-making and that he feared the power and the strength of the Philistine armies. No matter what people thought, no matter what the conjecture was, on this hot summer day in the Valley of Elah, Saul was afraid. He was very afraid. He was perhaps as afraid as he had ever been in his whole life. 1 Samuel 17, 2 says, And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered together and pitched by the valley of Elah and set the battle in array against the Philistines. And the Philistines stood on a mountain on the one side and Israel stood on a mountain on the other side and there was a valley between them. And there went out a champion out of the camp of the Philistines named Goliath of Gath whose height was six cubits and a span. 
And he had a helmet of brass upon his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail. And the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of brass. And he had greaves of brass upon his legs and a target of brass between his shoulders. And the staff of his spear was like a weaver's beam. And his spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron. And one bearing a shield went before him. If there was any doubt in the minds of the Israelites before, now they knew. The myths of their ancestors were true. Monsters were real. They actually existed. And here stood the hero of Gath, every bit of ten feet tall, his shoulders as broad as the length of a man. His armor glistened like fish scales on the light of the midday sun. The men of Israel trembled at his sight, and the Philistines cheered beating their drums and, and clattering their swords and their shields together. Day after day, he had come in and out of the camp in full array and cried out the same message. Why are you come out to, stand, uh, to set your battle in array? Am not I a Philistine and ye servants to Saul? Choose you a man for, uh, for you and let him come down to me. If he be able to fight with me and to kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then then shall ye be our servants and serve us. And the Philistines said, I defy the armies of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. And on this day, the 40th day of the giant's challenge, King Saul could take no more. And as Goliath roared out, Saul stopped up his ears and bit hard on his lower lip. He sweat profusely as he tried to shut out the threatening noise. That is, until he realized that his men were watching. And so he quickly gathered himself together and stood up straight and pretended that he deserved the privilege of his station, knowing deep in his heart that he didn't. The truth is, when Saul heard this billowing voice each day, his heart shattered inside. A hopeless feeling of dread. And he rehearsed the same questions over and over again in his mind. What have we done? Why why did we ever think that we could protect these lands? I should have never been put in this position. I I should have never been here. I should have never been anointed. This is a curse. This is a curse upon me and all of Israel. And so Saul did the only thing that he ever knew how to do when he was afraid. And that was to sit still. And pray that the problem would simply just go away, that it would take care of itself. But the thing is, it wouldn't. Something would have to be done. 
Whatever action was taken, it would either result in massacre or miracle, one way or the other. And as Saul hid nervously in his tent that day, a young shepherd boy traveled. His satchel on his side, his shepherd's staff in his hand. His three eldest brothers served as infantrymen in Saul's army. Their father had always said to them that everyone has to do their part. But the sons of Jesse were no different than the other soldiers, they were reluctant patriots of Israel. They were there because their father told them it was right, but they didn't have the heart for it. The young boy had been sent by his father to deliver a care package of roasted corn, bread, and cheese to give to the captain of his son's battalion. David, with his reddish-brown hair, traveled through the, the hot sun, The summer had left his fair complexion freckled and red. He was a quiet boy, known for talking to his sheep and singing when no one else was around. His father had taught him many ancient hymns of worship to Jehovah. Besides the the shepherds themselves, not many Israelites sang these hymns anymore. In fact, they didn't really even worship. David and his family were kind of traditional in this way. He had had learned to worship God from an early age. And he carried a deep passion for conversing with God in the quiet of the hillsides as he tended to the sheep. But today, today he had a job to do. He had hiked 12 miles with the task of pandering to the captain and, and checking in on his three oldest brothers. As he entered the camp and he began to speak with his siblings, he was suddenly startled by the sound of the loudest voice he had ever heard ringing deep from in the valley. It it, it halted him in his his steps and he noticed as all of the Israelites went silent. As the raspy words of Goliath blasphemed his God, David's smooth and wrinkleless brow began to slowly furrow. He heard the mocking, and his heart began to swell with offense. His heart felt so big with emotion that it, that it seemed as though it might break through his chest. He looked around to observe others' reactions. He saw the men of the army whispering to one another. They were were daydreaming and, and speculating about how the king would reward the man that could kill Goliath. That man, he would be rich beyond his wildest dreams. And yet, not a single one of them had the courage to do anything but talk. David couldn't even hear their words. In fact, he heard nothing. 
The whole world had gone silent in his ears. His cheeks began to burn, his heart now in his throat. He felt himself forcing back the tears that began to well up in his eyes. He couldn't make sense of his thoughts. All at once, he felt deep anger. He felt deep shame. And most deeply, he felt a a desire to worship his God. He imagined himself dancing and singing before Jehovah. Those thoughts brought him peace, but just for a moment. Until once again, he heard the Philistine drums break through his thoughts. And now he saw himself in his mind's eye, not dancing, not dancing, not, not singing, but covered in the blood of his enemies. And he suddenly knew that that was worship too. He turned his attention to the men in the camp and he, he spoke to the cowardly guys, huddled around, chatting. What shall be done to the man that killeth this Philistine and taketh away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And the people answered him after this manner, saying, So shall it be done to the man that killeth him. His brothers were embarrassed at his arrogance. And they scoffed at their baby brother. They mocked him and they told him to go home and tend to the sheep. But the young boy snapped back at them and said, what, what have I now done? Is there not a cause? And he turned from him toward another and spake after the same manner. And the people answered him again after the former manner. And as David argued with the men and called them to consider the weight of this very moment... He was suddenly shuffled aside to to the captain and and several men and and they moved him about and they said nothing but they escorted the young angry boy a short distance to the the tent of King Saul. So David stood before the king and before the king could speak, David spoke up with confidence and he pleaded and he said, let no man's heart fail because of him. Let no man's heart fail because of the giant. Thy servant will go and fight with this Philistine. Saul, shaking his head, paused for a moment and then spoke. Thou art not able to go against the Philistine to fight with him. For thou art but a boy, a youth. And he, a man of of war from his earliest childhood. David replied to him zealously to make his case. Thy servant kept his father's sheep. There came a lion and a bear and and took a lamb out of the flock. And and I went out after him and smote him and delivered it out of his mouth. And and when he arose against me, I, I caught him by his beard and smote him and slew him. Thy servant slew both the lion and the bear, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be as one of them, seeing he hath defied the armies of the living God. The Lord that delivered me out of the paw of the lion, out of the paw of the bear, he will deliver me out of the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said unto David, 
Go. And the Lord be with thee. Saul had no idea what to think about this situation. Could this young boy be their only option? Certainly this would have to end in disaster, but what choice did he have? What other options were on the table? And so without any words, Saul waved for his men to bring his personal armor, and they placed it on David. And Saul took his personal sword, one of only two in the entire military, and firmly put it in the grip of David's hand. David thought to himself, is this an honor? He felt uncomfortable. He felt silly. David said reluctantly unto Saul, I cannot go with these, for I have not proved them. David put them off him. And with that, David stepped beyond the tent and picked up his staff. He walked briskly down the valley to the brook some 200 yards from his audacious foe. He crouched down next to the bubbly water and put his feet in the shallow edge. The water was cool and refreshing. He had never felt so clear in his thinking. But at the exact same time, he had never felt so, felt so out of control. It felt like a, a fire burned inside him. But at this very moment, as he plunged his hand into the water and groped about for five smooth stones, he felt calm, focused, and ready. He stood, and he reached down along his waist and grabbed his sling in hand and slowly drew near. As David approached, the size of the giant began to shock him. He was easily two, no, 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 three, three, three times the size of his armor bearer who stood beside him in the open field. David felt fear once again pass over him, but just for a moment, only until the giant began to speak again. Am I a dog that thou comest to me with staves? And, and the Philistine cursed David by his gods. And the Philistine said to David, Come to me, and I will give thy flesh unto the fowls of the air and the beasts of the field. And right there David knew that the giant felt disdained by his youth. He saw the young boy as an unworthy opponent. But this was David's advantage, and he knew it. Because in his heart, in that moment, he was reminded of the stories of Gideon. The stories that people used to tell about how God used small people to do hard things. He knew that his size was actually nothing. That God had an objective and he wanted to use him. Right that very moment, God wanted glory. And he wanted David to be his vessel of honor. So David spoke. And when he spoke, he spoke with venom and with power, words that felt foreign to his lips. Thou comest to me with a sword and with a spear and with a shield, but I come to thee in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, 
whom thou hast defied. This day will the Lord deliver thee into mine hands, and I will smite him. And I will smite you, and I will, I will, take, I will take thine head from thee. And I will give the carcasses of the host of the Philistines this day unto the fowls of the air and the beasts, the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. And all this assembly shall know that the Lord saveth not with the sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hands. These words from the small boy were all it took to send the monster into a rage. He began to lumber towards David, head forward. He built momentum with each pounding step. And David just as quickly took flight, sprinting, while reaching down and pulling out one white stone. As the two contrasting figures came within 50 yards of each other, David began to turn his sling, increasing its speed with each pass. He could hear it whizzing in his right ear, and he began to, tr to pray before the Lord, God be true, for I am thy servant. And as they drew nearer, 30 yards, no, now 20, the fire burned deep in his veins. His eyesight narrowed. He could see the spittle fly from his enemy's mouth and could make out his broad but distinct features. He saw his eyes dark and dead inside, and then he released, whoosh, and smote the Philistine in his forehead, that the stone sunk into his forehead, and he fell upon his face to the earth. David slid to a sudden, a sudden stop in the gravel, breathing deeply to catch his breath. As he surveyed this, the Philistine armies, he noted that they were all silent. He could see them each for, for who they truly were in that moment. He saw his enemies. He saw the enemies of the one true God. And he knew that it wasn't finished. He must show them. He must make it clear. And so he rushed towards the fallen giant. The, the armor bearer backed into a confused retreat. David reached down and grabbed hold of Goliath's sword, clumsily revealing it from its sheath. A sword two times the size of Saul's. It was heavy and cumbersome. But he took it nonetheless and he lifted it over his head. And as he did, the armies of the Israelites erupted in pandemonium. And as they cheered... David let out a scream of praise. He cried with everything that he had. And he pushed downward. And he let the weight of the blade do the work. And cut off his enemy, his head, his head therewith. And, and when the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. And the men of Israel and of Judah arose and shouted and pursued the Philistines until thou come to the valley and to the gates of Ekron, and the wounded of the Philistines fell down by the way of Sherem, even unto Gath and unto Ekron. And the, the children of Israel returned from chasing after the Philistines, and they, they spoiled their tents. And David took the head of the Philistine, and he picked it up. And he walked it step by step to Jerusalem. And Saul witnessed all of this. And soon after that, he would recruit David to join his army. 
David left his shepherding behind and became a man, a great man of military might. And as long as David was in the ranks, it seemed as though the nation of Israel always prevailed. Saul came to love David as a son. And David would even sing psalms of God's love to Saul to soothe the king's mind of all the things that worried him day in and day out. But not only that, David was a man of the people. Coming in and out of the gates of Jerusalem, he wasn't like the king. See, the king saw he was hidden behind stone walls, but, but David became a friend to the people that he met in the city. He was like a, a living folk hero to the people of Israel. The stories about him were similar to the ones of Samson and Moses and Abraham. And they began to sing his legend, and it became popular to say, you know, Saul hath slain his thousands, and David his ten thousands. But when those words began to creep into the ear of Saul, he began to resent those comparisons. And despite how effective David was and, and how much love David expressed towards Saul, Saul couldn't help it, but he began to resent him and, and to hate him. And in time, that resentment turned to rage. And that rage drove him to charge David with treason. David had no choice. He had to flee. He left, he left Jerusalem and he fled into the wilderness. He couldn't go home to Bethlehem because it would put his friends and family at risk. David had gone from having the heart and the favor of the king to being his worst enemy. David had gone from being a victor to a fugitive with no explanation at all for why. And this is where our lesson begins today. God makes normal people, just like David, just like you or I, capable of doing mighty things. But isn't it interesting that, that the moment that we step into the wilderness, we forget what God has done in us. See, we want to be mighty. We want to be strong. But all of us, from time to time, we're anxious, we're afraid. Now listen, we're excited about what God's doing. We believe that he's done great things in our lives. We think back on our salvation, and we think back about those early days of discipleship and all the things that God did in our life and how much we've changed. And we think of that with, with fondness and and we're grateful, we're grateful, we really, really are. We know in our mind that Christ has been good to us. But when warfare comes, when, when ministry is difficult, when it's time for us to evangelize and, and strive for fruitfulness, so many of us are paralyzed. We're like David running in the wilderness, suddenly unsure of who we are and and what we've been made to be. The Bible tells us that, that over a series of days, David slowly made his way north to the city of Nob. Just two miles. It wasn't very far. 
He felt abandoned and hungry and unprotected. He had no friends around him. He had no food. He had no weapons. You know, when David was a boy and he came to the valley of Elah, he came empty-handed. Didn't he? He had no weapons for war. He He had no preparation. He wasn't ready for the challenge that stood before him. But in his mind, he knew that God would fill the gaps, that his grace would be sufficient. God always seemed to make the unclear things clear. This is what the Apostle Paul communicates to the church in Corinth when he says, And he said unto me, My grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. But in this moment of doubt, this moment of change, this moment of uncertainty, David, the mighty giant slayer, was afraid and unsure, and he felt like he didn't belong. And my question for you is this, have you ever felt that way? You have a desire to know God. You want to follow after him. And yet, for some reason, everything feels spiritually cold. You watch other people in church and in ministry. You see them thriving. And you want to do just as they do. You want to be engaged at that level, but you don't know how. You want to be useful for God. But as you look around, you don't know where you belong. You don't know where you're, you fit. You're, you don't want to know what your gifting is. What are you supposed to do? And the question for you today is, what will it take to prove that God has made you to kill giants? That he's literally outfitted you to be a victor and overcomer. He's made you to be a death where is thy sting, child of God. What further proof do you need before you believe that God is with you? What else does he need to do before you know that you are provided for? What more must he do to prove to you that he will go before you and protect you in any situation? What else does he have to do? See, David believed that he had a friend in Nob in the priest of Ahimelech. He believed that despite the oddity of his circumstances, that that he could convince Ahimelech to feed him. And so here in 1 Samuel 21.1, David on the run, it says, Then came David to Nob, to Ahimelech, the priest. And Ahimelech was afraid at the meeting of David. It surprised him. What was the captain of the armies doing here this day? And he said unto him, why art thou alone and no man with thee? I mean, if David's going to be here, where where are his servants and where is his army? And David said unto Himelech, the priest, well, the, the king hath commanded me a business. And I said unto me, let no man know any of, my, uh, of the business whereabout I send thee and, and what I have commanded thee. And, and I have appointed my servants to such and such a place. Now, therefore, what is under thy hand? So he's convinced Ahimelech, look, I'm just here on a secret mission. Don't ask any questions. It's all good. 
But then he says, what's under thy hand? Give me five loaves of bread in my, my hand or, or what there is present, whatever you got, I'll take it. And the priest answered David and said, there's no common bread under my hand, but there is a hollow bread. If the young men have kept themselves at least from women. So here's our first key point. I'm going to get a drink. I need a drink. This has water. Thanks, guys. Thanks for loving me. This first key point is, is very important. It's very simple, but very important. Remember the nourishment of God's word. Remember it. When we feel spiritually depleted, God's word is what we need. When we're struggling with vain thoughts and our emotions are unbecoming of a giant slayer, that's when we need nourishment. And I know you guys feel this way because I counsel with you. It's common for young people who are following Christ to feel this way. There's, there always comes a moment where it's like, I don't get it and I don't know why, but I just feel this way and I don't know what to do about it. Have you, have you ever felt that way? I feel empty. I, 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 something's not right. And in those moments, we think to ourselves, well, if I just talk to Blade, he'll help me feel better. If I just get a moment with Brandon, or I just get a moment with my Bible study leader, or, or, or I get a, a moment with, with my pastor, they'll say the magic words, and, and something will come over me, and I'll feel better. But listen to me. I don't hold any magic words. Pastor Tom doesn't hold any magic words. What we need is the nourishment of God's word. That's what we need. The problem is we don't want the showbread. We don't want the holy bread. We want the bread of convenience. We don't want it to be hallowed. See, we would rather have cake and ice cream and, and dainties. We would rather be appeased than actually changed. See, we want food that will make us momentarily happy, but won't provide any sustaining joy. Jeremiah 15, 16 says, Thy words were found, and I did eat them, and thy word was unto me the joy and rejoicing of mine heart. For I am called by thy name, O Lord God of hosts. See, when we consume the word of God, it's supposed to bring us joy and rejoicing. But we don't want that bread. Now, here's the other thing, is that sometimes we do. Sometimes we convince ourselves, we say, no, no, I know I need the Bible. I know that that's what I need. And, and so we wake up early and we do our devotional time. We open up the Bible. We usually go to the Psalms when we don't know where to go, right? Go to, go to the Psalms and we, and we begin to read. But what happens, what happens when that feels stale too? Is there something defective with God's word? 
Sometimes we go to God's word and we look at it and our eyes glaze over and, and nothing enters our heart. The, the fire isn't stoked. It isn't kindled. Now here's the question though. Maybe, maybe, maybe the reason that it feels stale, the reason that the hollow bread doesn't do what it's supposed to do is because you're eating it unworthily. You're eating it with a defiled heart before your God. See, Ahimelech warns David that he can't have the showbread unless he's kept himself from sexual defilement. That's how the law worked. So it's important for us to understand that sometimes a failure to repent keeps us malnourished. See, the bread is hallowed. And as a Christian, while you are saved and redeemed and positionally, you're good with God. You're good. God and I are good. I've been forgiven of my sins. Listen, unrepented sin makes you personally at odds with God. So you might be positionally correct with him. You might be made righteous. But in your personal life, you're not right. It ain't right. There's something broken in your relationship. And it's on you. It's not on God. See, he's met you. He's come to you. Every time you failed, he's come and met with you. He's been near to you. His grace is there. It's ever present. It's on you to repent of the darkness in your heart. It's up to you to repent of the sin, to be honest before the living God, before you can properly take that showbread and make it nourishment to your lips. James 4, 6 says, but he giveth more grace, doesn't he? Wherefore he saith, God resisteth the proud, but giveth grace unto the humble. Now our God, abundant in grace, willing to send his own son to die for us and to, to cleanse us of our sin, that God, the God that gives more grace, also says that there is a relational kind of grace. There's a grace that exists within the sanctification process. There's a grace that exists within the day-to-day -day of your life. And you can resist the goodness of God's grace that we talked about yesterday. The goodness of his work. You can resist his faithfulness by choosing to be faithless in your own heart. And so the reason that you feel the way you feel means that there are things that you need to talk to God about. So begin with a heart of humility and vulnerability, then, then receive, then receive God's word. But you know, sometimes we struggle with this because we're weak and maybe we're immature. And like children, we like, we don't have the uh, hand-eye coordination To accomplish the thing that we want to do. I remember when my kids were real young, about Lee's age. They were always so frustrated because they couldn't do the thing. They couldn't say the words they wanted to say. And their hands wouldn't quite do the things that they wanted them to do. And you know what? Sometimes we're just like that. 
We know what we want to accomplish. We want the relationship with God. We know that there's objectives in mind, and yet we're kind of fumbling. And in those moments, in those moments, sometimes we require the help of others to help us remember how good God is. And maybe we need refreshment from another believer's table. Verse 5, are you guys still with me? And David answered the priest and said unto him, Of a truth, women have been kept from us about these three days since I came out, and the vessels of the young men are, are holy, and the bread is a manner common. Yea, though it were sanctified this day in the vessel. So the priest gave him hallowed bread. So he continued his, his deception because he, he doubted. He doubted Ahimelech. So the priest gave him hallowed bread, for there was no bread there but the showbread that was taken from before the Lord to put hot bread in the day when it was taken away. David got God's bread, but it was a friend. It was a friend that delivered it to him. Here's the next key point, and this is something we always forget. We always forget this. Remember that you have friends in God's people. Man, guys, look around. I mean, there's, there's so many of us room, and I know you don't all know each other, and I know, I, listen, listen, you know why we're here? Because regardless of whether or not you know each other, we're here because we're allies. And if we're allies, then we're friends. We fight for the same cause. And so we're for one another. Now, I know how this works, though. So many young people, they get in their fields, and they get all worked up, and they don't know what to think, and their mind starts going off, and it begins looking, it begins looking outside of the church, and, and we begin going a different way. And our heart feels tugged, and we feel empty inside. And you know what we're tempted to do? We're tempted to look at our allies as though they're enemies, we begin to look at one another sideways and we say to ourselves, so-and-so doesn't actually have my, my best interest in mind. I, you know, I can't really trust so-and-so's counsel, so I can't go to them. I won't go to them. I mean, I know I, I probably need to talk through this stuff and, and I know what I really need is nourishment from God's word. I know that intellectually, but look, my heart just says, no, I'm not going to. I'm not willing. Because we, we're looking at the way David's looking at Ahimelech. We look at each other with suspicion. Remember that you have friends in God's people, and aren't they? Haven't they loved you when other people wouldn't? We forget that God's people love us. You know why? Because we fail to love them. When you fail to love... It's only natural that you begin to doubt other people's love for you. That's called projection. When you're messed up, becomes other people's messed up. And what's really wrong with you, you imagine that's what's wrong with everyone else. And so if you don't feel loved, maybe it's because you are failing to love other people. David treated Ahimelech with suspicion while his real enemy the whole time 
was standing outside plotting and scheming against him. The real enemy watched in the doorway. Verse 7 says, Now a certain man of the servants of Saul was there that day, detained before the Lord, and his name was Doeg, an Edomite, the chiefest of the herdmen that belonged to Saul. This man, man in the next chapter kills all of the priests in Nob on Saul's behalf. He's a wicked man. The enemy was right there. And yet David treated his friend, his pastor, as though he was the enemy. How jacked is that? Don't treat your brothers and sisters with suspicion. If you're going to be suspicious of anything, be suspicious of those who are planning your demise from outside of your ranks. Don't you know that there's an enemy at your door? Why do you entertain him? Don't you know that there's one that wants to see you fall? One that wants to see you sin? One that wants to see you feeling empty? Why is it that he's the one that you you aren't concerned with? And look, here's the deal. Good friends always give you bread when you can't nourish yourself. Good friends are always willing to give you of their table. They're always there waiting to share. And you know what? The crumbs from your friend's table are better than feasts at your enemies. So when you can't feed yourself, you should go to your friends. But here's the deal, and we know this to be true. Ultimately, David needs to be equipped. You know, he needed, he needed his sword. Because here's the deal. What good was physical sustenance? What good was the bread? What good was the energy that it brought him, the strength that it brought him? If he didn't have a sword in his hand, what good would physical strength be if he didn't also have spiritual strength in his right hand? And so, verse 8 says, And David said unto Ahimelech, And is there not... Here under thine hand, spear or sword? Is there, is, are there any ep- weapons here in the house of God? Your first thought is like, what are weapons doing? It's like, you know, the pastors probably shouldn't have a Glock in their drawer. I don't know, maybe. maybe. <laughs> but he's like, is there a spear or a sword here? Now here's the honest truth. In the house of God, there may, there may be no guns or swords, but listen, in every church, There's a spiritual sword. And every time the word of God is opened, you are equipped. So he says, is there not here under thine hand somewhere a spear or sword? Nor I have neither brought my sword, which is like, Ahimelech's like, what? Well, you came out here without a sword. Now, Now things seem real fishy. Neither brought my sword nor my weapons with me because the king's business required haste. I had to get here quick. And the priest kind of ignored that, and he said, you know, we do have a sword. 
We just happen to have a sword. The sword of Goliath, the Philistine, is here, whom thou slewest in the valley of Elah. Behold, it is here wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod. If thou wilt take it, take it. For there is no other save that here. And David said, there is none like that. Give it me. Here's the key point. Remember the power of God's word. Remember it. Do not forget. See, remember, the problem here is that David had forgotten. I mean, this David does not look like the David that we saw in chapter 17. Where is the, where is the ruddy young man with the sling in his hand? Where is that guy? He's running around scurrying about, hungry. He's got no friends. He has nowhere to turn. And he's clearly afraid. Listen to me. Remember the power of God's word. God was faithful to provide him a sword. And he's been faithful to provide us a sword too. Ephesians 6, 17 says, And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Take it. Take the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, the Spirit that dwells inside of you. It has an instrument of war, and it's God's Word. We have been given the Word of God, which protects us from the enemy and empowers us for the work of ministry. Now, I want you to remember something very, very, very important that we often forget. They didn't talk about this in your Sunday school class. They didn't highlight this fact because it's a bit gruesome. It's a bit too much. But here, listen to me. You need to remember that Goliath wasn't dead until after his head was chopped off. He wasn't dead until David chose to pick up a sword. See, we too are, we're ineffective in our objectives without the exacting word of the sword. Listen, we might, we might smite giants with a sling, but we slay them with swords. You're apologetic. It might smite a few in the heart. Your knowledge, your cunning, your ability to debate might sway people, might bring them to their knees on your campus or in your workplace. But listen to me. They will never, they will never be slain for the sake of Christ until the sword comes out. the giants in your heart, in your life, you know, you might momentarily cause them to, to fall down or to, to be hurt. You know, you might meet with a friend and your friend might have some kind things to say and, and you might feel happy that day. 
You, you might feel in that moment, maybe for a week, for maybe for two weeks, you might feel good about yourself. But listen to me. The giant of your depression, your anxiety, your fear, your doubt, your circumstances will not be slain until you lay hold on the promises of God's word. Until you pick up the sword and you wield it with exacting measure. Hebrews 4.12 says, The word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow. It is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. See, the word of God is perfect for the work of dealing with your emotional issues. God was faithful to give David the sword of Goliath that day. And David says, there's none sword like it. And that is true. That was true for him and it's true for you too. There is no sword like the sword of God's word. And as David fled in fear of Saul that day, he may not have had all the answers. He was alone. He was dirty. And he didn't know where he was going. He may not have known exactly what God was up to. All of his questions before God probably weren't answered. But I do believe that God was faithful to give him a friend to fill his belly and to provide him with the weapon that he needed. A weapon that would remind him that he was, in fact, a giant killer. That was his identity. That is who he was in his deepest, innermost spirit. And there was nothing that should cause him fear. And so I wonder today, I'm going to invite the worship team up. We're going to enter into worship and I wonder if right now you feel really small. Don't pay, don't pay attention to them, okay? Let's focus in. Listen, I wonder if you feel really small. I wonder if you feel incapable today. I wonder if you have doubt. You have doubt about what God's doing in your life. Uh, you, you have doubt about your identity. You have doubt about the gifts that God has given you. Doubt about your place in your church. Doubt about your friends. Doubt about all the fellowship that you've had. Maybe you've been at church two, three, four years. And suddenly you feel alone. Some of you in the room right now think that your only friends exist outside the doors of your church. Now, I wonder if in your weakness, you could have the boldness to ask a friend today for nourishment and a sword. I wonder if today you've got the guts 
in your wilderness place to say to yourself and to say before the living God, I have need of you and you alone. Whatever it is that I need, it's in you. Your grace is sufficient. And so I want to invite you into worship. And we're going to have counselors up front on either side, people that are waiting on you. Just come and grab somebody. It doesn't need to look clean. No one's looking at you. Nobody cares. Everybody's worshiping the Lord. No one cares about what's going on. Every, every decision made is victory. Every time a believer repents, God gets worship. So if there's something that needs to be dealt with, don't be afraid. Come forward, grab someone, disappear somewhere, and pray before the living God that he would nourish you and provide you with the strength and protection that you need to go on. Let's make the decisions that need to be made. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we love you. And we're grateful for your word. We're grateful for how fantastic the narrative of your scripture is. We are, we are so grateful that you are a God that invites us into your good work. And today, Lord, if we feel weak or incapable of, of, of living your mission, if there's something that's wrong, there's something defective or deficient in our life, Lord, I pray that your spirit would provoke us to confess that before you, acknowledge it, and begin to deal with it rightly and let your sword do its piercing work to, to cut away whatever is broken in our emotions or in our thinking. We know that you're capable of this because what we do is we look back and we remember the giants that have been slain in our past and we hold the sword of Goliath in our right hand and we say, we know that our God does amazing things, that he does big things with small people, that he does the impossible. He does the impossible in the lives of the weak and the feeble and the humble. And we remember that. We remember it now and we claim it. And we come before you and we confess. Help us as we enter into the season of worship. Make us to be right before you in Jesus' name. Amen. that today's message encouraged you to follow Christ in his word. For more information about Kaya, for service times and information about our disciple-making ministry, please visit our website at caya.live.